We now join a live worship Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome you to Bible class here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and also our listening audience on KFUO. And today we're going to consider the lessons from Trinity Sunday, which is next Sunday. Trinity Sunday. So, we're going to start with Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. By the way, if you don't have a sheet, they're up here this week. Okay. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Very uh, somewhat well-known text. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. King Isaiah... We know pretty much when he reigned, and he died in 758 B.C., as far as we know, 758 B.C. So based on that, we know when this uh, was, and uh, it was really at a high point in Israel. Everything was going well. Prosperity for all the people. Israel as a nation was on a high. But when King Isaiah died, things went downhill. It's interesting to note that the founding of Rome was four years later. 754. And really, you could take this year that Isaiah died and watch Israel go like this and watch Rome go like this. So it was a time of change, okay? A time of change. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This was a vision for Isaiah. We don't know if he was transported there into heaven or if it was just a vision. But most think it was a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, there are others that record that they saw God sitting on the throne. One of them is Ezekiel. And one of them is John in Revelation. In both John and Ezekiel, they give us a description of what that figure sitting on the throne was looked like in broad strokes. But Isaiah gives us nothing. Isaiah gives us nothing. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, high and lifted up. He was above all. Now, notice it gives no description of the Lord except that he had this huge robe, and the train covered the temple floor. 
okay, covered the temple floor. We're thinking about Isaiah entering the, on the earth it was called the Holy of Holies. That was the shadow of what was to come. But this is the throne room of God. And his train covers the temple floor. So imagine if it was a room this big, the train would cover this whole floor. Everything. It's reminding us that when we see God, it's indescribable. I'm sure that if you line up Isaiah and Ezekiel and John, and they all see the Lord, guess what? The descriptions are going to be different. Because certain things are going to impact each one of them differently. That's much what we have with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When they saw these events, sometimes they didn't record them exactly alike. But certainly in seeing the Lord, certain things would make an impact on you. And evidently, Isaiah liked the robe. Okay? So it filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Now, the description of seraphim are... Um, we have to kind of figure this out, but, but they're basically fiery beings, okay? They're a rank of angels, fiery beings, probably the highest rank of angels, okay? Above him stood the seraphim. Now, let's get this straight, and everybody says the same thing. There's no seraphim above God. What we believe Isaiah is describing is the seraphim were in the throne room above the robe, but not above God. Nothing's above God. Nothing's higher than that. So the seraphim were in the throne room hovering over his robe. Okay? Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. All right. If we go back to Ezekiel and John again, they also describe these beings, but each a little different. I'm sure if you saw one of these magnificent creatures, again, each person would be impacted by certain things. So Ezekiel and John give a little different description in their, uh, in their uh, books. Again, uh, between Ezekiel and John, there are lots of things we don't know. Uh, all uh, Isaiah describes is the number of wings. But uh, Ezekiel and, and uh, Revelation 
give more detail. If you want to read those, it's Ezekiel chapter 1, and it's Revelation chapter 4, when they describe these magnificent beings. All right. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's why it's chosen for Trinity Sunday. How many holies are there? Three. Okay. Three. He saw the Lord, but there are three emphasizing one God, three persons. Okay. So they basically declare that the Lord fills the whole earth with his glory. And they sing this from what we know continuously. Okay? Continuously. Now it's interesting to note that in the Gospel of John, he basically tells us what Isaiah saw. And uh, it's, it's recorded in John chapter 7, uh, beginning in 37, and all of a sudden he talks about what, um, what was seen. So, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's not the right passage. Wrong. I thought it was John. No. Oh. Got the wrong chapter. John 12. Okay, in John 12, um, Jesus starts. Um, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from this, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That has to be referring to Isaiah 6. That Isaiah spoke these things because he saw the Lord. All right, so verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Imagine you're in the doorway of the throne room, and when this singing goes on, the pillars shake. 
above your head. The foundation shake. And it's filled with smoke. Remember, they had to burn incense in the Holy of Holies so the high priest would not look directly at the Ark of the Covenant or he would die. And said, and I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. From the time of Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God. And God said, you cannot see my face or you will die. And from that point on, it was taught in Israel that if you saw God, you died. Because he was holy and you are sinful. So Isaiah sees God and he figures, I'm a goner. It's all over. I have seen the Lord of hosts, the king. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Okay? This was the expiatory work of God, that in God's love, Isaiah was forgiven all his sins. When you're forgiven your sins, you can see God. So, Isaiah's sins were completely forgiven, completely and totally forgiven. So as far as Isaiah was concerned, he'd been spared. He'd seen God and been spared. Now, actually, we've, I, I left off the eighth verse. Then it said in heaven, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me, send me. Okay. So in response to God's total and complete forgiveness... He cries out, I'll go. I'll go. And that's where the lesson ends. Now, the rest of Isaiah 6, uh, he says he'll go, but then Isaiah, God warns him they're not going to listen. Okay? But I'm sending you anyway. Okay? Call to repentance. Call to repentance. But the emphasis in this lesson is the majesty and the glory of God on his throne with the seraphim and his robe and that he forgives sins. That's why this lesson is chosen for Trinity, holy, holy, holy. All right, questions about that? Yes. That's right. Well, let me describe that. The question is, what about when Moses saw God and he didn't die? 
the actual account as you read it, the Lord said, you cannot see my face or you will die. But I will pass by so that you can see and I'm put you in the cleft of a rock so all you can see is my back. So Moses saw him as he passed by, but he did not see his face. And that's where we get rock of ages cleft for me. Okay. So that's what God provided for Moses when he asked to see him. All right, Acts 2. Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was seven weeks after the Sabbath on Passover. They were celebrating the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was a major celebration, and everyone would come to Jerusalem many pilgrims, so that Jerusalem was packed. This, of course, was seven Sundays after Easter. Okay? That's, today. that's, that's uh, uh, today, but that's when this occurred. This is the second part of Peter's sermon. Okay? This is the second part. We're going to read Acts 2, 1 to 21 next week. No, we read it today. Okay. This is next week. We continue with the sermon. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Israel. That is, he's addressing Jews, not Gentiles. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. He was attested to us by God from the time he was born. A star attested his birth. At his baptism, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him. You can go through, he was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Okay, so he did all these signs, healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, and it says God was working through him, okay, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not by chance, God planned it this way for the salvation of mankind. This was no fluke. Now, notice they say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, everybody's lawless. Everybody is. But this is the preaching of the law. You killed them. God sent you a Savior. He attested to you that he is the Savior by signs and wonders, and you killed him. Okay? 
You killed him. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All right. And then we get to this quote. This quote by David is from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. 8 to 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What's special about this quote is, first of all, David said it. This is a promise to David that death is not going to reign over him or his covenant people. So look at this from David's perspective. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And King David rejoiced because the word of God had come to him promising that he and the covenant people would not be overcome by death. But there's more. Because David didn't know it, but he was speaking prophetically. And this would not just be applied to David and the covenant people. It would be applied to Christ. Now think of it as Christ speaking. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He was the Holy One. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. David spoke it, but it was also prophetic about Jesus Christ. Both. Both. It's true for David, and it would be true for Jesus Christ. Now, how does Peter know this? No way Peter knows this unless the Holy Spirit's come on Pentecost. No way he knows this. No way he snatches this quote out of Psalm 16 and quotes. There's no way. 
It is the coming of the Holy Spirit that gave Peter the understanding to be able to apply this passage to the death of Christ, that these people crucified him, but God raised him as David said. The fulfillment of a prophecy. 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. Now he's interpreting it for the people. That's what this passage means. It was, its ultimate fulfillment was in Jesus Christ. That's where its true fulfillment was. Being therefore exalted, that's his... uh, ascension and session at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay? So God raised him from the dead. He has exalted him. And now the Father pours out the Holy Spirit That's what you're seeing, and that's what you're hearing. Remember, this was the day of Pentecost. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Another quote from David. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. Another interesting passage, because David writes this, and what David speaks is he is addressing one of his descendants, but calling him his superior. He is addressing one of his descendants. One of his descendants is Christ, and so he dresses him, addresses him, as his superior, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand and I make your enemies your footstool. Okay. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's cutting them no slack. This is your fault. And it goes on. And next week we read the first part. I don't know why they did it that way. But what happens after this is the people say, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's when it says, and they baptized 3,000 people that day. So that's the result of this sermon. 
Now, why do we read that on Trinity? Because all three members of the Trinity are mentioned. The plan of God, the Father, the work of Jesus in rising from the dead, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's why this lesson is read on Trinity Sunday. Okay? All right. Then we get to the main event. A lesson we know well, but a lesson that impacts us greatly. And there's lots here. John 3, 1 to 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Okay? He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews. This man came by night, all right? Well, there's three things that people conjecture why he came at night, all right? He came at night, first of all, maybe in fear. Because as a member of the Sanhedrin, dare he be caught talking to this Jesus. That's one thought. The other thought is that he wanted to come at night because there were so many crowds around Jesus, he wanted to have a private conversation. The third one is different. It's more of a symbolic that he came at night because he was in the darkness. When you're without Jesus, you're in the darkness, the darkness of sin and death. He came to the light of the world. So the figure of being at night and it may well have been at night, it could be read as the one who is in darkness comes to the light, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's kind of fun to think about, isn't it? Yeah. All right. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. He acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher, but he does not acknowledge that he is the Son of God. He declares that God is with him, but he does not declare him the Son of God. He does acknowledge nobody can do the kind of things you're doing apart from the power of God. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets right to the point. Basically, at this point, Nicodemus is trying to be nice, you know, brown nose, suck up a little, be nice. And Jesus just cuts to the chase. Truly, truly, I tell you. And then he goes on. So he takes over the conversation. This is a very important verse because it destroys all traditional thought and belief by Nicodemus and the likes of Nicodemus's brothers in the Sanhedrin. What is needed is not more law or human striving to keep the law. That's not going to do. That will not get you into the good graces of God. That's not what makes the difference. He wipes out all human effort with this phrase. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word again can also be translated from above. From above. In other words... What a human being needs is not to strive to keep the law to earn God's favor. The only thing that rescues us is the action of God from above that we are born again. It's all God's doing not ours. The Pharisees didn't teach that. They, teach you had, they taught you had to keep the law. And the more you kept the law, the better. In fact, they believed that if everybody in Israel would keep the law for one day, the Messiah would come. That's why they were so hard on people for not keeping it. Okay? You messed us up again. But Jesus is saying no human action, but only God's action is the basis of life and the kingdom of God. By the way, this is the only time John uses the words kingdom of God in his gospel. So he's wiped the slate clean. He's wiped out everything that Nicodemus and the Pharisees count on. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, the thought here is that Nicodemus is begging the question because he doesn't like the direction the argument is going. 
Don't talk to me about being born again. That's physically impossible. He don't want to talk about what's really being talked about here, which is spiritual rebirth. He understood what Jesus was saying, that his belief system just went down the tubes. Okay. So he tries to take an absurd position that you can't be born again. Six. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right. When we talk about flesh and spirit here, certainly when we think of flesh, we think of well, the way Apostle Paul uses it, and Paul always uses it as our sinful nature. Here, John may use it in a little different fashion. He may be saying, of this world, okay, that there are two planes we're talking about here, what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. And on earth, when you're born, you're going to be like those you were born from, flesh and blood. But then when he says that which is born of spirit, he's talking about that which is born from the heavenly realm, okay? The Holy Spirit. That is from above. See, that's what he's emphasizing again. It's from above. It's God's doing. It's the Holy Spirit. It is not man's doing. Being born of the flesh is man's doing. Being born of the spirit is God's doing. Okay? God's doing. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Okay. Remember I told you last week that in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit, wind, and breath is the same word. You have to figure out from the context which one it is. We're pretty confident, we are confident, that this is wind because you don't hear the Holy Spirit. You don't hear him. He's giving an example from earthly meteorology, okay? That is, the context demands wind because description, the description of the weather phenomenon that ancients knew nothing about. In other words, they knew nothing about weather. Why did the wind blow? Where did it start? Where did it go? They knew nothing, okay? Nothing of it. Parallel, you know nothing of the Spirit either. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Two people walking down the street, 
One's born of the Spirit, one's not. Can you see it? Can you tell where it came from or how it happened? No, it's the work of God. So it's like the wind. It's the work of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Who is the we? All of a sudden, he switches to we. Some assume that while Jesus and Nicodemus were having this conversation, the disciples were there and were listening. That's the we. That's the we. That's, that's what we assume here. Then in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The conversation is on earth about the Spirit's work on earth. If you don't get that, you will never understand heavenly things from the Son of Man who descended from heaven. In other words, Jesus says, I'm giving you the basics of how the Holy Spirit works on earth. If you don't understand that, how are you ever going to understand when I tell you heavenly? When I tell you heaven, he is raising the bar, okay? You're a Pharisee. You think you know all these things. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. Now, I'm going to tell you how the Spirit works on earth you're not going to be able to understand it or explain it, but this is how it happens. And if you don't understand that, how are you going to understand heavenly things? All right. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, okay, on a cross, on a cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There it is. There it is. No other conditions. Nothing about keeping the law. Nothing about striving to keep the law. 
Everything that Jesus has described is from above. The work of the Holy Spirit, all of that. The work of the Holy Spirit. Now, one other thing I wanted to touch on. No, that's okay. So, anyway, as Moses lifted up, up the serpent, and you looked and you lived, bitten by a serpent, Satan. I mean, you could allegorize this thing to death. Um, but God draws the parallel for us. So if you look at Jesus Christ, even if you're bitten by the serpent, Satan, you live. You live. And everything Nicodemus has ever believed is gone. Is gone. Now, I want to go back up to verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Don't immediately think that this is Christian baptism. Because at the time Jesus told Nicodemus this, there was no Christian baptism. Because Christ himself had not instituted it. Now, by the time the readers of the Gospel of John read it, there was Christian baptism. Okay? But Nicodemus would have had no concept whatsoever of Christian baptism. The emphasis is simply on God's action. A spiritual water referring to birth, rebirth, as opposed to natural birth. Okay? As opposed to natural birth. Don't instantly connect it with Christian baptism because there is no way. Now, maybe Jesus was using that term prophetically, that it is going to be. But Nicodemus had no concept of Christian baptism. None. So just be aware of that because we're quick to say, well, that's baptism. Well, Nicodemus didn't know that. Nicodemus did not know that. All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay. Well, let's go back to eternal life. That's the first time eternal life is used in the Gospel of John. It pertains to life. The Jews believed there were two ages, the present age and the age to come. So the eternal simply meant referring to life in the next age that will not end. In the next age that will not end. That's Jewish belief about that term. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves. It is his nature. There is no, no qualifications here. It's the world. He shows the love in sending his son. He gave his son to the world and to the cross. The atonement of what Jesus did on the cross shows us, shows us the heart of God. The heart of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Negative and then positive. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it does say that Jesus will come again to judge. The answer to this paradox is simple. The very fact is, salvation is for all who believe. Judgment is for all that don't. Okay? Judgment is for all that refuse to believe. That's why we read this morning uh, in the uh, gospel lesson that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. That's the only sin that's really left. All the others are forgivable. But not if you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. That is sin. That is the greatest sin because our God has sent us a Savior and we reject Him. If we reject Him, there is judgment. So, um, questions? Yes, Nancy. Okay. Question is, David says he doesn't want to go to Hades. What is the other one that... Jews talk about. It's called Sheol, the place of the dead. Okay? The place of the dead. And uh, uh, that's what many believe. There was a place of the dead. Uh, eternal life is not described in the detail that it is in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay? That is why when God describes himself, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was because he died. They died. I am. I still am because they're alive. Okay? So it's there, but it's not as clear as we see it described in the New Testament. Other questions? Yeah, Lois? 
It hasn't happened yet. The question is, when Jesus says the words, uh, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. He is born in this world. He'd already descended into heaven. He'd already descended from heaven by being born in this world. Huh? He said it, get over it. Some things Jesus says, and that's the way it is. He knew he would. Okay? Yes. Well, it, a lot of things confused Nicodemus. Okay? But he will ascend. And he's the only one that descended. Okay? That's why, and we can apply a little bit of that to Jesus saying water in the Spirit. Maybe he is talking about the baptism that he will institute. But Nicodemus didn't know that yet. Just like he didn't know he would ascend into heaven. Yes. Right. Okay. The question is, was the baptism of John the Baptist, ultimately it comes down to the same as Christian baptism? And we answer, no. And we answer that on the grounds that uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Christ instituted baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the examples we have in the book of Acts is that the uh, evangelists come to a town and they find a group of people and as they preach to them, they say, I think it's Acts 19, we have been baptized with John's baptism. And the implication is they have not received the Holy Spirit. So they baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but it is not Christian baptism. So we do make a distinction. Just because you were baptized by John does not mean you don't need to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. Well, our time is up. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.